Captive of the Centaurianus, Chapter 4 They used the last sputter of flame to sit down in the wildest and remotest valley they could find. Looking at the port, Ray wondered if they hadn't, perhaps, overdone it. Beyond the little ship there was a stretch of seamed and gullied stone, a rough, craggy waste sloping up toward the fang-peaked, razorback ridge of the hills, weird, flickering play of shadows between the looming boulders as the thin wind blew a veil of snow across the deep greenish-blue sky. Jupiter was an amber scimitar low in the northern horizon, though near the south pole, with a sprawling panorama of sharp stars around it fading out near the tiny sun. Snow lay heaped in drifts beyond the wind-scoured rocks, and the far green blink of glaciers reflected the pale, heatless sunlight from the hills. Snow. Well, yes, thought Ray, it was snow of a sort. All the water in Ganymede was, of course, solid ice. So were the carbon dioxide and ammonia, but the temperature often dropped low enough to precipitate methane or nitrogen. The moon's atmosphere, what there was of it, consisted mostly of argon, nitrogen, methane, and vapours of the frozen substances not especially breathable. The colonists used the standard green plant air renewal system, obtaining extra oxygen from its compounds and water from the ice strata, and heated their dwellings from the central atomic energy units. Ray hoped the ship's equipment was in working order. There was native life out there, a few scrubby grey-leaved thickets, a frightened leaper bounding kangaroo-like into the hills. The biochemistry of Ganymede was a weird and wonderful thing, which human scientists were still a long way from understanding, but involved substances capable of absorbing heat energy directly and releasing it as needed. The carnivores lacked the secretions, obtaining them from their prey, and had given the colonists a lot of trouble because of their fondness for the generous supply of heat a human necessarily carried around with him. Uh, what do we do now? asked Ray. Deanne's eyes lit with a hopeful gleam. Hunt monsters? she suggested. Bah! Uriskidan snaked his way to the small desk, bolted to the cabin floor, and extracted paper and pencil from the drawers. I shall develop an interest in aspect of unified field theory. Do not disturb me. Ray looked around the ship, behind the forward cabin, which held bunks and a little cooking outfit, as well as the controls. There was a larger space, cluttered with assorted physical apparatus. Beyond that, he supposed, were the gyros, air plant, and misbehaving engines. Is this a laboratory boat? inquired. Yes, said the Martian. I chose it because Tao always kept ready to go out for a gyben field test to new apparatus. Give me a table of elliptical integrals, please. Look, said Ray, we've got to do something. The Jovians will be combing this damned moon for us, and it's not so big that we have much chance of their not finding us before we can clean out those tubes. We've got to prepare an escape. How? Arushkadan fixed him with a bespectacled stare. Well, uh, maybe, maybe get ready to flee into the hills. How long would we last out there? The Martian turned back to his work and blew a cloud of smoke. No, I will devote myself to the booties of poor mathematics. But if they catch us, they'll kill us. They won't kill me, said Arishkadan smugly. I am too valuable. Come on, Ray, said Deanne. Let's go monster hunting. Wah! The Earthman blew up, jumping with rage. In the low gravity, his leap cracked his head against the ceiling. Oh, my poor Ray, Deanne folded him in a bear's embrace. Let me go, damn it. I want to live if you don't. Be serene, advised Arishkadan. 
Look at it from the aspect of eternity. You are one of the lower animals and your life is of no importance. You octopus, you conceited windbag. If I needed any proof that Martians were inferior, you'd be it. Temper, temper. Ereshkodan wagged a flexible finger at Ray. Be objective, my friend. And if your philosophy is so deficient that it will not prove a priori that Martians are always right, by definition, then consider the facts. Martians are beautiful. Martians have an old and peaceful civilization. Even physically we are superior. We can leap under Earth conditions, but I dare you to go out on Mars without a spacesuit. I double dog dare you. Martians, gritted Ray, didn't come to Earth. Earthmen came to Mars. Certainly, we had no reason to visit Earth. But you, of course, came to Mars to admire our booty and wisdom. Now please fetch me that table of integrals. There's nothing we can do to help ourselves, said Dan. So we might as well go hunting. Afterward, we can make a love. Oh, no, Wade grunted. If I had that damn interstellar drive, I'd get out of this hole so fast that... that... That yes, asked Deanne. Gods of Pluto, whispered the man. That's it. That's it. Get me that table, screamed Ereshkodan. The drive, the faster than light drive. Ray did a jig, bouncing from floor to wall to ceiling. We've got a shipful of equipment. We've got the system's only authority on the subject. We'll build ourselves a faster than light engine. Ereshkodan grumbled his way back into the lab. I'll get it myself, Dan, he muttered. See if I care. The engine. The engine, Deanne, we can escape. Ray grabbed her by the arms and tried to shake her. We can go home. Her eyes filled with tears. You want to leave me, she accused. You want to get rid of me. No, 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 I want to save all our lives. Come on, give me a hand. We've got some heavy stuff to move around. Deanne shook her head, pouting. No, she said. You don't love me. I won't help you. Oh, Lord, look, Deanne, I love you. I adore you. I worship at your feet. But give me a hand. Deanne brightened considerably, but said only, Prove it. Ray kissed her. She kissed back, and he yelled as his ribs began to give way. Yelp, some other time, honey. I want only to save your life. Don't you see? Some other time, said Deanne firmly. It's not now. Come here, you. Stop that noise, yelled Ereshkodan and slammed the laboratory door. Viva honeymoon on Varan, sighed Deanne happily. You shall ride to battle at my side. Much later, the aroma of coffee drew Ereshkodan back into the forward cabin. A disheveled and weary-looking Ray Ballantyne was puttering around the hot plate while Deanne sat polishing her sword and humming to herself. Now, said Ray, turning with what seemed like relief to the Martian, just how does this new drive of yours work? It's not a drive, and it does not work. It is a structure of poor mathematics, said Ereshkodan. Anyway, the theory is beyond the comprehension of anybody but myself. Give me some coffee. But you must have an idea how it would work in practice. Oh, no doubt if I wanted to take the time I could devise something, but I'm engaged in developing a new theory of cosmic origins. Ereshkodan sloped coffee into himself. We've got to build it and escape. I told you you're of neither booty nor importance. Why should I take time with you? But look, if the Jovians capture you, they'll force you to build it for them. They have ways, and then they'll overrun Mars along with all the other planets. The only thing that's held them back so far is the difficulty of interplanetary logistics. 
but when you have ships that can cross the orbit of Pluto in a matter of hours or minutes, that isn't a problem any longer. That would be unfortunate, yes, but I'm in the midst of a very new and important train of thought. It would be more unfortunate if Tat were lost than if a few ephemeral Jobians conquered the system. They wouldn't last a thousand years, but a genius like me is born once in a million. Diane hefted her sword. Do as Ray says, she observed. You dare not hurt me, said Arushka Dan with a smug expression, or you will never get away. He went over to the desk and began investigating the drawers again. What do they keep in their tobacco? I cannot work without my pipe. Jovians, said Ray glumly, don't smoke. They consider it a degenerate habit. What? The Martian's howl rattled the coffee pot on the hot plate. No tobacco! Only your own supply back in Ganymede City, and I dare say the Jovians have confiscated and destroyed it by now. That puts the nearest cigar store somewhere in the asteroid belt. The new cosmology ruined by tobacco shortage! Arushkidan stood thinking a moment, then came to a sudden decision. There's no help for it. If the nearest tobacco is millions of miles away, we must build a faster than light engine at once! Ray made no attempt to follow the Martian's long-winded equations in detail. What he was interested in was making use of them, and he proceeded with slashing approximations that brought screams of almost physical agony from Arushkidan. Essentially, though, he recognized that the scientist's achievement lay in making what seemed to be a final correlation of relativity and wave mechanics, something which even the Goldfarb-Olson formulas had not fully reached. Relativity deals with solid bodies moving at definite velocities, which cannot exceed that of light. But in wave mechanics, the particle becomes a weird and shadowy psi function, and is only probably where it is. In the latter theory, point-to-point transitions are not velocities, but shifts in the node of a complex wave. It turned out that the electronic wave velocity, which, unlike the group velocity, is not limited by the speed of light, could be imparted to matter under the right conditions, so that the most probable position of the electron went from point to point at a bewildering rate. The trick was to create the right conditions. A field of nuclear space strain is set up by the circuit, and the ship, reacting against the entire mass of the universe, moves without need of rockets. Right? asked the Earthman. Wrong! said Arushkadan. Well, we'll build it anyway, said Ray. Here, Diane, bring that generator over this way, will you? I want to go monster hunting, she sulked. Bring it over, you lummox. Diane glared, but stooped over the massive machine, and between Ganymedean gravity and Varanian muscle, staggered against the floor with it. Ray was checking circuits on the oscilloscope. Arushkadan sat grumbling about heat and humidity and fanning himself with his ears. The lab was a mess of tubes, condensers, rheostats, and tangled wire. I'm stuck, wailed Ray. I need a register having so and so many ohms along with such and such a capacitance. Find me one, quick. If you'd specify your units more precisely, began Ereshkidan huffily. Ray parred through the litter on the floor, putting one object after another into his testing circuit, glancing at the meters and throwing it across the room. It's vital he said. Fill this door, maybe, said Diane innocently, holding out the ship's one and only frying pan. Get out, screamed Ray. I go monster hunting, she pouted. Absent-mindedly, Ray tested the frying pan. It was nearly right. By Luna, if he sawed off the handle. Hey, yelped the Rishkadan. 
I don't like the thought of eating cold beans, cold canned meat and raw eggs any better than you, said Ray. But damn it, we've got to get out of here. He soldered the emasculated pan into its circuit. Star Wars, the cause of human empire, he muttered viciously. Martian empire, corrected Arishkadan. It'll be Jovian empire if we don't clear out of here. Okay, big brain, what comes next? How should I know? How can you expect me to tink in this foul tick air without tobacco? Arishkadan turned his back. Diane clumped in, space-suited, sword in one hand and rifle in the other. I saw monsters out there, she said. I'm going out to kill them. Oh, yeah, sure, muttered Ray without looking up from his slide rule. Arushkadan, you've got to calculate the resident psi function for me. What? said the Martian. By heaven, you snake-legged bagpipe. I'm the captain here and you'll do as I say. Up your rectifier. Arushkadan was emptying his ashtray in search of tobacco shreds. The airlock clanged behind Diane. I'll be damned, murmured Ray. She really is going out after them. It is a good idea, said Arushkadan a trifle more amiably. Try help sense to radiations of our ship, and are probably coming to crack it open. Oh, well, if that's all. Huh? Ray sprang to the nearest port and lucked out. Ganny dragons! Ganny dragons, he groaned. I thought they'd been exterminated. Toes too don't seem to know it, said Arishkadan uneasily. All right, I'll calculate your function for you. There were two of the monsters moving toward the boat. They looked like thirty feet of long-legged alligator but the claws and beaks had ripped metal in earlier days of colonization. Diane lifted her rifle and fired. A dragon screamed, thin and faint in the wispy atmosphere, and turned his head and snapped. Diane laughed and bounded closer. Another shot, and another. Something hit her and the gun flew from her hand. The dragon's tail smote again, and Diane soared skyward. As she hit the ground, the two monsters leaped for her. Ha, Oman! she yelled shaking her ringing head till the ruddy hair flew within the helmet. She crouched low and then sprang. Up over the fanged head, striking down with her sword as she went by, the monster whirled after her, greenish blood streaming from the cut and freezing. Diane backed against a looming rock, spread her feet and lifted the sword. The first dragon struck at her, mouth agape. Diane hewed out again, the sword a leaping blaze of steel, the blow smashing home and exploding its force back into her own muscles. The dragon's head sprang from the neck. She rolled under the lashing claws and tail to get free. The headless body struck the other dragon, which promptly began to fight it. Diane circled warily about the struggle, breathing hard. The live dragon trampled its opponent underfoot, looked around, and charged her. The ground shuddered under its galloping mass. Diane turned and fled. The dragon roared hollowly as she went up the long slope of the nearest hill. She saw a high crag and scrambled to its top, the dragon rampaging below her. Nyaaah, she thumbed her faceplate. Come and get me. The monster's dim brain finally decided that the ship was bigger and easier prey. Turning, it lumbered down the hillside. Diane launched herself into the air and landed astride its neck. The dragon hooted and snapped after her. She climbed higher, grabbed its horn with one gauntleted hand, and hung on for her life. The steed began to run. Who bang away over the hills with the moonscape blurring in speed? Wind shrieked thinly about Diane's helmet. She bounced off her seat and came down again. A landslide rumbled behind her. The dragon zoomed up the ridge, leaped from a bluff, 
and started across the cratered plain beyond. Diane dragged at the horn, turning its head, fighting the monster into a circular stampede. Ha, Omen! she yelled. Ha, Katantuma! In an hour or so, the dragon stopped and stood gasping. Diane slid stiffly to the ground, whirled her sword over her head, and decapitated the monster. Then she skipped home, laughing. Diane! cried Ray as she came through the airlock. Diane! We thought you were dead! Oh, it was fun, she grinned. Fix me a sandwich. She sat down, got up rather quickly, and opened her arms to Ray. He retreated nervously toward the lab. Uwushkadan snickered and slammed the door in his face. 